the most important thing to healing through trauma and loss is having the tools to be able to, when things come up, you go, oh, I know how to get through this. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest today is Susan Snow. In 1985, her father, LAPD detective Thomas C. Williams, died in the line of duty. In this conversation, Susan chronicles her journey through the trauma she experienced following her father's murder. Listen for the stories we tell ourselves in order to make sense of what makes absolutely no sense. The ways the world receives us, often helpless and sometimes powerfully insightful. Susan Snow is the author of The Other Side of the Gun, a book born out of her own healing transformation and driven by her mission to help others through their loss and pain. Right now, right here, Susan Snow joins us in the Trauma Hiders Club. Susan, I am so glad you're here. This is really a special moment. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your wanting to talk with me and find out my story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that while your story is unique, so listeners, just so you know, Susan and I, of course, had a conversation I think it was last week, where we really dug in. What I want to say is, while your story is absolutely unique to you, just like all of us have a unique story, the impact of your experience is one that is everywhere. And in fact, the very reason for this podcast, the impact, the, the, the trauma, the lasting effects are regardless of the amount of horror experienced, what I think is the through line here is that we we all experience something. I'm not here to make that okay. What I'm here to say is we all experience something. And the more we acknowledge that we have those somethings, the greater we have an opportunity to do some work around those things. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to say that. Okay. So I'm just going to throw out a few questions. Sure. We're going to start with, 
So what I know about you is your life changed dramatically when you were 16 years old. So I'm going to take you a little bit back. Tell us, who were you at 10 years old? What did you love to do? Oh, my gosh. Well, at 10 years old, I was actually a gymnast. I loved anything physical, you know, so I was a gymnast. I was a dancer. I, you know, I was an ice skater early on and I loved it. The only part of that was I was not able to continue in those quests. (laughs) And a lot of it was because of my parents' schedules. So because the schedules would fluctuate, you know, that would be hard for them to take me to practices and, and whatnot. So I wasn't able to complete, you know, the gymnastics career or, you know, everything. So I feel like as a child, I was a dabbler, you know, Mm -hmm. I like dabbled into different things. Was it difficult for you? Because you loved it. You loved dancing. You loved gymnastics. Was it difficult for you when your parents were like, look, we can't get you there. You're done. What happened on your side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was frustrating, obviously, for a kid when you start to get good at something or you start progressing and then you have to quit. It's hard. But I think early on, it was like I had an understanding that I had no control over things. Mm. And so, you know, when things shifted and I knew I had no control over them, I just moved forward on to the next thing. <laughs> so, Also, you were used to a lifestyle with shifting schedules. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you were used to that. And so things probably had to had to shift around that. So in the family, there's you, there's your mom. And what did your mom do? She did a lot of HR stuff. Oh, okay. Okay. But early on, she worked for a convent for wayward girls, as you would say. Hmm. She was like almost like a counselor in that respect. And then it moved her into the HR later down the road a little bit. Yeah. I love that when, right, like you go in to do work, like being a counselor, that's something that's very heart-centered, right? It's of the people. And when you get to be great and appreciated at your job, they're like, oh, cool. Let's make you an administrator when you will not even be with the people. (laughs) It happens. It just happens all the time. It just happens. You never know where you're going to end up. Right. And um, your dad, you're living with your mom and dad. Yeah. Yep. And I had a brother. Okay. So tell me about your dad. What was his job? He was an LAPD detective stationed in North Hollywood. Okay. So for those maybe not in this country, LAPD is the Los Angeles Police Department. So he was a detective. Okay. Yes. Got it. Mm -hmm. And your little brother? I was 10 when he was born. Okay. We're 10 years apart. Wow. So I had 10 years of not having a sibling yeah. And then all of a sudden I had a sibling. <laughs> right. Well, I imagine that shifted the uh, the schedules too. A little bit. Yes, yeah. For yeah. sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I hear in someone who loves gymnastics and dancing is you like to move. You like to thrill. You like to tumble. Right. 
there's also like a confidence that comes with all of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like a showmanship and all of that. Mm-hmm. Tell me, who were you at 15 years old? Oh, my gosh. At 15 years old, I was really quiet. Mm. I had no self-esteem. My parents actually put me in modeling because they thought that it would pull my shyness out of me. And then it kind of backfired on them because once they started modeling, I really liked it. And so I had self-confidence and it caused me, because I was a little chubby, uh, really struggled. I was made fun of in high school with boys and things like that. And so, you know, and of course my dad would be like, oh, you're beautiful. And, you know, the things that dad would say, Mm -hmm. right, to make you try to feel better. But I just didn't. And, you know, I was I was not dating the right guys. Let's just put it that way. Like I had absolutely no confidence. So when they put me in modeling, I really enjoyed it. And that's, I think, where the confidence came into because it kind of thrust me into a world that I was not used to mm-hmm. and teaching me how to present myself. So I think that's my early on speaking thing <laughs> because I I had to speak with some of the classes I took and things like that. And I had to learn how to project myself and just come out of my shyness. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, from 10 to 15, was it puberty? Was it just like changing? Yeah, I think yeah, a lot of it was that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think as I got older, there were some things that went on with the family from 10 to 15 that it definitely caused me to turtle a little bit. So I, with my mom working at this convent, she created a relationship with a young lady who was a teenager and she uh, was not safe in the home that they transferred her into. And so my dad and my mom decided to foster her. Uh. And she came to our house and this is before I had a sibling. So I, I was so excited to have a big sister and she was gorgeous, like stunning. Okay. But she had a rough life, Mm -hmm. really rough life. But she, I just wanted to be just like her, even Mm. though she was kind of on the naughty side. (laughs) She was a little bit more mature than me, but she was actually murdered. She ran away from our house because she was not used to having a normal environment. And my mom put a lot of emphasis into that relationship. And I kind of faded into the background a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, so that kind of started me kind of going inward a little bit, especially after Ginny was killed. Mm -hmm. I I just, I don't know. I, I, I just, I saw her confidence in herself and I just wanted to be that. But, you know, after she died, there was the, the sadness in our household and everything that was going on. It just, it was the first time I went into a mourning kind of thing. I had no idea. Wow. So it was, you know, it was a little stressful and a lot stressful and it's a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, going into the modeling thing, it was something that I can do. 
my mom and dad took part in it, you know, really pushed me to, to do it. I mean, they signed me up. <laughs> so, and I'm appreciative of that because mm-hmm. that was kind of the start of my coming out of my shyness and, you know, my low self-esteem. Yeah. So I don't want to gloss over the part about Ginny being murdered. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. No. And that is, in a way, I don't want to say it's foreshadowing, but I mean, at 15, right, you were 15 and a year later, right? So this is like one stepping stone to your world. So I was, I think I was 13 when she died. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're 13 yeah. when she died. Okay. I was in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. So fucked up, right? Somebody you look up to and she's beautiful yeah. and she's outgoing and you're in a, like a shy stage and in a way, a role model, even with her, you know, yeah. oh, her living on the edge, right? Even that right. can be, there's something to be gained by seeing somebody oh, yeah. who is living on the edge. And wow, I'm sorry for that, for that experience. So now we get to 17. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Senior in high school. And you've already experienced this, this loss although not a family member, but a fostered family member. Right. right? So you, you know, like how many teenagers even know what it is to experience profound loss and try to make sense of that. And there's no sense making in murder, right? There's just no sense making. And now you're 17 and your life changes. Can you tell us drastically, drastically, (laughs) your life changes once again. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So tell us what you want us to know. Okay. Well, so on October 31st, it was Halloween, actually. It started out in the morning where my dad was going to testify on a case. And my mom had already left and she, because she had a costume party at her work. So she left my dad and I are very close. We had a very close relationship. And, you know, he was kind of funny and in a way where he never, like he wasn't a fashion person. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like he didn't care, he, he, whatever, you know, he put a suit on, if it matched, if it didn't matter, it didn't matter. And that morning he seemed very nervous and he's not normally nervous, but my mom had left. So he asked me to help him get his suit together for this, you know, when he went to go testify. And of course I had a party that I wanted to go to that night. And um, I thought, well, I'm going to help dad. And then he'll let me go to this party. (laughs) Cause you know, I'm a teenager. So a little manipulative, but whatever, whatever works, (laughs) right. Whatever works. So got through the morning and went to school and on the way to the school, we were arguing because he was not allowing me to go to this party. Uh, It was a school night kind of thing. And, you know, is that how he was? He was the cop father. Yeah. So he was just like, you know, and I I bagged him like my boyfriend will be there and everything will be okay and whatever. But he was just like, no. Right. And so after school, I got home and I was like, I'm going to clean the entire house and I'm, I'm going to do everything <laughs> to schmooze my parents to allow me to go to this party. So I was all excited. And then my mom came home and she was taking her 
costume off and I was putting mine on in hopes that when dad got home, we were going to be able to go. I was going to be able to convince him and look at all this goodness. You clean the house. You yeah, look suit. what I did. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And instead the phone rang and I ran and got it because I was a teenager. And of course, anytime a phone rang, it's for a teenager, right? <laughs> right. And, and for those listening who may not know of this about the world, there was a time when there were phones and there was only one right. line and, right. and it could be for anybody in the house. Yeah. But for a teenager, it's all about you. <laughs> That's right. We didn't know who was calling. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked up the phone and it was a lady from my brother's school. My brother was six at the time. And she said there was a drive-by shooting and my dad was involved. And my gut just sank. Um, I handed the phone to my mom and I could tell by her demeanor that it was serious. So she got off the phone. She said, we're headed to the school. And neither one of us knew what we were going to come up upon. You know, we just had no idea. My mom I think was thinking, you know, we were going to go to the hospital, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, I didn't even know what to think. Mm -hmm. When we got to the school, we saw ambulances and police officers walking around. Ambulance was just sitting there with the lights blaring. The police officers that were walking around were crying. Mm -hmm. And when we got to my dad's truck, we saw his body. And he was partially covered up and then the truck was shot up and it was just the whole aftermath. And my brain split in half. I mean, I watched my mom drop to her knees and scream and police officers trying to hold her back. So, you know, I, I just, it was, uh, it was, yeah, my brain just like split in half. I, I didn't, like I knew what I was looking at but part of my brain could not compute that he was gone. I looked at the ambulance and I'm like, why isn't anybody doing anything? Mm -hmm. Right. Then they shuffles us off to the office. And I, at that point had no idea where my brother was. I didn't know if he was hurt. I don't know if he was at a hospital. I didn't know where he was. And by then there was detectives there and stuff. And they took my mom aside and I sat there in the office, still trying to process what was happening. And my mom came up to me and she said, I'm sending you home with the neighbor. Mm. And I didn't know what to think because part of me was like, wait, what? <laughs> I want to know where my brother is. I, I, wanna, I want you, mom. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to process this. So she did. She sent me with a neighbor and I had to process with the neighbor. But it was so when I was in the office, though, part of me wanted to run like the physical side of me got like, I just want to run. I want to get the heck out of here. Mm -hmm. Right. But part of me was like, but I still want to be with my family. I want to make sure my brother is OK. And I didn't know until one of the ladies was talking to another woman and she said what happened. And she said that my dad was dead, that it clicked. And then I got shuffled off 
I had a boyfriend at the time who I'm still married to. And I had to ask the neighbor, like, I need my boyfriend. Like, I, I can't. He was 19 at the time. And I was 17. And I just, I, I needed him with me. So I had to tell him. And that was another trauma on top of it. Because he loved my dad. He, he you know, we weren't dating very long. But my dad and him had a pretty good relationship in the short amount of time. And both of us had no idea how to manage all of this chaos. Yeah. And to even say the words to your, you know, I think to whom you say those words is not as important as the impact of saying those words. Can you remember what was going on with you when you said to your boyfriend, what did you say? Well, he did show up to the neighbor's house and he said, there's police everywhere. There was police everywhere up and down the block. And I was still not processing, obviously. But when he got to the door, because the neighbor didn't tell him the whole story, he got to the door and he said, grab your coat and take you to the hospital. Which hospital is he at? Mm. And I was like, you don't understand. You know, I remember I kept saying that over and over again. You don't understand. And he's like, come on, let's go. Let's, you know, and, and I said, it's too late. Mm. I said, he's gone. And the look on my boyfriend's face and he dropped to his knees. Mm. You know, I'm trying to process and I'm watching him be traumatized by what I'm saying to him. Yeah. And he stayed with me that night as long as he could until we were okay to go back to my house. But even that was just, I mean, everything around it was just so surreal. Like you just, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, you know, because it's just, you go from having this normal life to something you can't even recognize anymore. Now you're on the other side. There's no like being between two worlds. You are there now. You're on the other side of murder. You're on the other side of death. You're on the other side of your father is not here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm so sorry for all of that. And I know that you've done incredible work since then. A lot of work. I want to rush (laughs) into that part. Yeah. 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 So, okay, 17. As I recall, there's a connection between the testimony of that day and what happened later in the day and the drive-by shooting. And so that was identified right away. Yeah. Because the perpetrator, he was out on bail. Mm. And so that freed him up to, Mm. he dressed up like a clown and he went to the school and waited for my dad to bring my brother out. So my dad's last heroic thing that he did was he told my brother to duck down in the truck to save his life because he knew what was going to happen. So, you know, um, it was a huge trauma for my brother at six. At six. And so he, oh, yeah, he could report that's what happened in the car. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Out on bail. There's just so much of that. It oh, just doesn't make ah. <laughs> oh, it's like cannot compute. Yeah, there were so many things around 
So the perpetrator, he was the head of a robbery ring. Mm. And his whole mindset was if there was no witnesses, there's no case. So he, he cased us for months and it was just so convoluted. You know, it was just so evil. There's no other way to describe it, but he followed us every day, followed me. This was a planned out, thought out ambush and murder. Oh, my. Oh, my. So here you are. You've had your world blown apart, literally. What happens to you? How does the world support you? (laughs) Well, I will say that early on in that situation, all the attention was obviously on my brother. And so be it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I get that. But I kind of felt like I was on an island by myself. Mm. The media, and understand, this was such a huge story. Mm -hmm. The media ate it up. Mm -hmm. And so for three days after my dad was killed, nobody even knew he had a teenage daughter. So I, early on, internalized the concept that I was going to have to figure this out myself on how to navigate all the things that were going on in my head. And obviously, you know, my mom was caught up in her grief and her duties of figuring out the logistical stuff and then being with my brother since he was so little. So for me, it was like, I just kind of, I don't even know if I was living, to be honest. Like, like I said, it was it was like I I was just going through life in a big fog. And all I wanted to do every day, I kept thinking about how much I wanted to be with my dad and depression. I mean, all the things I'd wake up. I wouldn't even sleep. I just shut my eyes and the minute I shut my eyes, I would see the scene and I would come back awake again. And I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp mm-hmm. that this was my life. I, I couldn't grasp it. And I imagine trying to make sense of it and then feeling guilty about it. And then all of, just all of it, like, oh man, I was trying to manipulate them that day. And mm-hmm. all those things that, only I could have changed that. And then you get judgmental about, right? You have self-judgment around, well, shit, I was manipulative. And and why did I want to go to that party anyway? And I'm a bad person. Yeah. I imagine it's oh, yeah. all that. Uh, oh, fuckling. shame was a big thing about it. It was big for me. Shame was, guilt was, I was frustrated. I, I just wanted an adult Mm. somebody to step in and like not take my pain away, but at least help me to know that I wasn't on an Island by myself. And even, you know, my boyfriend, I mean, he's 19, right? He, he doesn't have the skills nor the wherewithal nor the, you know, and honestly, because of the severity of the situation, most adults around me would tiptoe. Like they didn't know what to say to me. They didn't want to, they didn't want to hurt me. They didn't want, you know what I mean? And so like, I didn't have the support system 
and there was no support groups for children of, you know, murdered parents and, you know, things like that. So you just really, that's where I just adopted the, I'm going to have to figure this out as I go kind of thing. But it was scary because I was really needing an adult, somebody to come in and say, just talk to me and tell me how to navigate this stuff because right. my brain was taken over. <laughs> or even even to say to you, everything that you're feeling right now is normal. Yeah. The, right. The disconnect that you have from reality and the vision that you have when you close your, your eyes, all of this is normal. You are normal. Yeah, I just, I thought I snapped and I was crazy. Yeah, I'd imagine. I was just crazy. That's it. You know, that's it. I, 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 that's I must just be. snapped and I'm crazy. Yeah. So that's what I would tell myself. Like, you're just nuts. You're crazy. You, you broke, like you're broken. <laughs> that's what I would tell myself. You're broken. Did the, Law enforcement system have any kind of, they provide any kind of support for you? Well, funny you should say that. <laughs> About a month after the funeral and all the hoopla was died down, LAPD decided that we needed to go into therapy. And so they paid for us to go in, see a therapist. And so I was introduced to therapy and I'd, I was a teenager. I had no idea what therapy was. And in my mind, people that went to therapy back then were crazy. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of verified that I was crazy right. because people, you know, they were like, no, you need to go to therapy. So I was like, all right, you know, if this is what I need to do. My mom was like, yeah, this is what we need to do. And did you all go as a group? Or you had individual therapists? No, we went into individual. Yeah, there was someone who saw my brother, someone that saw my mother, and then the person that saw me. Okay. I saw this gentleman for an entire year. And people are blown away when I tell them this. But the sessions were so shallow that we never dove into how what happened to my dad affected me. All we talked about was my relationship with my mother because it was fractured, my relationship with my boyfriend, and school. That's it. That, that's it. Any other teenager might have the same conversation without the piece, right, of their father was murdered in a drive-by shooting. Right. Like, we're not going to touch that piece. No. And no. I was still, I had suicidal ideation, oh my. severe depression, severe anxiety. I mean, all these things. And every session, every time I went in, I was like, today is the day we're going to, we're going to, and no, it never happened. And so, or this would happen, like we'd get to the last five minutes of the session and it would start to evolve. And then he'd be like, Oh, session's off session's done. Mm. And then when I went back the next week, we didn't pick it back up again. It was just the same thing over and over. So for an entire year at the end of the year, he looked at me in the face and he said, you know what, Susan, you are a strong 
well-rounded young lady and you're going to be fine for the rest of your life and I don't need to see you anymore. You're healed. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? I am still a hot mess. I still have all these fleeting thoughts and I still don't sleep at night. And I, I feel like I'm walking through a fog, you know what I mean? And it was just, I have so much sadness, deep sadness all the time. And my relationship with my mom is fractured and I'm trying to be a good big sister to my brother, but I don't know how to support him either. So there was just all this stuff. And he just told me, nope, you're good. You're good. For the rest of your life, you're going to be fine. For the rest of your life. Wow. You've got like a lifetime pass. Look at you. I I think I walked out of that like just this was therapy. Like, (laughs) what? Yeah. And and at 17, you're still like dutiful, right? You're still used to people telling you what to do and how it is. You're a student of life at that point. You don't know that you're allowed to say this fucking sucks and this is bullshit and I'm not getting anywhere. And here's the conversation I want to have in therapy. Right. Exactly. Because as humans, we get to ask for what we want. But at 17, we don't know that. And it wouldn't have made sense if someone said to you, hey, Susan, you know what? Sounds like you're having coffee with your therapist. And there's so much more there. Yeah, you need to you need to seek other therapy. Yeah. Okay. so tell us, tell us what's most important about how you came to. I want to get to a place in my life where I feel you while we know you were always whole, where I feel whole again. Well, another tragic event. And I was much older now, married, children, Columbine. Mm. 1999, we were living in Colorado. I didn't know anything about PTSD. You know, I wasn't spoken about it. All I knew about it was military people that came back from war. Those were the people that got at PTSD. But when Columbine happened, I was at work at the time as a hairdresser, and I had left my client to process, went into the back room, turned on the TV, and there it was. And I watched the teenagers that were around my same age, saw the police officers, saw the ambulance lights, all of it. It's at a school. And it triggered me. Mm -hmm. It's at a school. I had flashbacks. Yeah. Yep. Sweating, turned pale. I mean, all the things, and I couldn't figure out what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. And it just sent me into a spiral. But I had lived my life in fight or flight for so many years that I was able to put a mask on, even if I was in complete turmoil inside. And nobody knew what was going on on the exterior. But as soon as I walked out of those doors from work every day, the suicidal ideation popped in. And I was spiraling. But now I know I have two children that I don't want to leave. So there was an internal fight for sure. And my husband was the one that stopped me at the door one day and said, you have two choices. You either get help or I'm putting you in a hospital. And I chose to get help. And I went to the doctor and he put me on antidepressants because that's what they do. 
immediately. And then he said, you need to seek another therapist. And I was like, oh, no, therapy. No. Oh, oh no. <laughs> no, not again. please. Yeah. So even though I was like kicking and screaming, like, oh, OK, here we go again. I found this therapist and it was like amazing because my first session, I kind of gave her a glimpse into my world and she looked at me and said, everything that you have been going through since the time you were 17 is normal. You're not crazy. You have PTSD. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. I, I didn't go to war, you know. And so I had that conversation with her. And she said, Susan, anyone can have PTSD if they go through a traumatic experience. And it doesn't matter what the trauma is. So this opened my eyes to a lot, a lot, a lot. And I finally felt like I had a map, mm -hmm. nice, a pathway to be able to work through all the things that I was dealing with. So that's what I did, you know, and the first thing she had me do was journal. Mm. Journaling was so powerful to me because I could put my words onto the page and take the stuff out of my head. And so the fleeting thoughts would start to fade a little bit because I was putting everything on paper. So that was my first step. Yeah, really nice. So journaling helped to create a spaciousness within you. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. So much of my, my coach training and the coaches I've had have been like, okay, journal, journal. And I resisted for so long. And it's interesting because like as a child, I wanted to be a writer, but my mother told me you can't be a writer because writers are lonely. So that kind of <laughs> stuck in, in my head. But I think I, I do think I sort of born to be a writer in a way. When my mom died, I started writing and I've never experienced a profound loss like that. And I really think like I have I don't know if there's a healthy, unhealthy grieving process, but it's really been helpful. So I am a coach who has resisted journaling for so long, knowing the benefit, and now I'm doing it. Yeah. So yeah, yep. such a yeah. great thing And then to I, do. from there, you know, she just moved me into some tapping to kind of reprogram my brain using tapping and affirmations and changing the mindset. And that was another powerful step for me because anytime I had my anxiety attacks, that's kind of what I would do to pull myself out of it. Um, do you still use tapping today? I do. There's certain times that I do being in real estate, you know, it's a little stressful. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you have a little anxiety and I, I, I have the tools and I think that's the most important thing to healing through trauma and loss is having the tools to be able to, when things come up, you go, oh, I know how to get through this. I have the tools in my tool belt to get through this. And so I started doing that. And then I was introduced to EMDR using the electronic panels and that was the first time I actually started to dive into my emotions and dive back into the trauma. And that wasn't easy, but I will tell you that it was a part of a release for me 
to be able to go back to that and know that I was in a safe place in order to do it. So I wasn't feeling the danger and the anxiety of, you know, uh, the insecurity. Yeah. I think it's really important. I'm just going to throw, add this. I've talked to several people who did EMDR and maybe, I don't even know, maybe for some people, the creating of safe places, safe peoples, safe beings, all of the safeties. I don't know, but maybe not everybody has to do that. It seems to me that we do, but I could be wrong about that. And it might just be with PTSD, you actually have to create all of the safeties so that you can go back. And and on the podcast, I have talked about how every session, if I imagined that I was made up of cement blocks, which are very heavy and very static. Every time I walked out of my therapy with EMDR, it was as if those cement blocks were floating in the air with a helium balloon. Like there was a lightness block by block by block, such a powerful resource, such a powerful tool to get absolutely go back into the scary places and come out with, oh, I'm safe. Yeah, absolutely. Process. Okay. So, so you did all this um, incredible, powerful shifting in your life. What do you want us to know about who you are today? Well, I will say I just wrote a book. I started at 50 years old. I decided this was it. I needed to take my experiences and the things that I do. And my purpose is to help others heal. So it's called the other side of the gun, my journey from trauma to resiliency. And I will say that was a whole nother diving, diving, diving. It was cathartic for myself to write it. And anytime I had fear, that's kind of my my tagline is bulldoze your fear because mm-hmm. when you do and you allow yourself to move through certain emotions and of the trauma and, and things that happened, you're lessening the hold that pain has on you, but you have to be able to bulldoze that. So every time I had fear, I stepped back and I thought about my purpose and my purpose was to help others. So it allowed me to move, keep pushing forward. So whatever that is for you, whether it's a, a legacy for your children, to teach them, whether it's to heal yourself, whatever it is for you, you know, and everything is individual. But for me, it was all about my purpose. It was all about stepping out of the fear and saying, I'm going to move through this because I want to heal enough to be able to allow other people to be vulnerable and other people to heal. That's what the book did Mm. for me. Yeah. I imagine it's interesting when I hear bulldoze your fear, that's not what I experience from your story at all. Um, Sorry. (laughs) What I, that's fine. Yeah. What I, what I'm experiencing over here is that you acknowledge that the fear is there and you surrounded it with love and compassion and self-compassion. Bulldoze your fear to me sounds like the message of like, fuck your fear. 
you did so much work in order to be with that fear. You didn't bulldoze it. You you're fucking dancing with the fear. <laughs> right. You are with it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a point. Yes, definitely. I, I, I just I, I I'm trying. Part of it was I wanted to teach my adult children like there's going to be things that are going to happen in your life. And yes, it's fearful to be able to look it in the face. Yeah. But if you look it in the face and you know that on the other side of that, you want to have the freedom from that pain. You've got to find what that is for you. And then it'll allow you to move through it. And then once you move through it, then you'll find that freedom from it having a hold on your life. Yeah. And to reflect back to you, you and your children will do that best, starting with compassion, self-compassion and love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Tell us. What's most exciting in your world? Right now? Oh my gosh, podcasts. <laughs> Fabulous. I've had so many meaningful, connective conversations. Yeah. And it helps me to grow, which is amazing. And I've learned from each podcast, you know, host. And, you know, this has been amazing, by the way. And I feel like, you know, my next step is I want to be on stages. I want to connect with people on a broader, more face-to-face kind of platform to tell them my message, you know, and I feel like that's, that's my purpose in life. Fabulous. Yeah. So we'll have, we'll have links to your website, how people can reach you, the various ways that you are here to share who you are and ways to connect people to who they are. That'll all be in the show notes and all that. Tell me what's been most helpful for you today here in the Trauma Hiders Club. Oh my gosh. I think that just talking about this and being able to connect with you on it, it keeps me growing, you know, and I think that's the most important part is, is to be able to be vulnerable on a big scale. Yeah. Because it teaches others to be vulnerable and be able to own their own story. Yep. And every time we do this, we get to go deeper with who we are. I'm just adding that because that's what I hear from you. Absolutely. Diving, diving, diving. That's right. (laughs) That's why they call it the work, right? (laughs) We get to to do it. It's a little lifetime sentence we've got. Well, this is wonderful. I'm so glad you were here. I'm so sorry that this is the story. And yet, I'm so proud of the way you tell it and who you are and who you be for the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.